Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 36 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the show. Every week I'm having deep, vulnerable and unedited conversations with powerful men from around the world who have overcome adversity to thrive in their businesses and their lives. Hope you're having a fantastic week and everything's going well for you. My thoughts for the week, I've been spending a lot of time in meditation and a lot of time alone and in silence over the last couple of weeks. And it's given me some tremendous, tremendous insights that I've just been savoring so much. I'm a big fan of Kyle Cease, as a lot of you know. I quote him a lot in my different conversations on the podcast. But Kyle Cease says, we don't have any problems. We're just addicted to them. And I've thought about that a lot. And I've thought, but man, I don't really get that. I mean, surely we have problems, we have issues and things we have to deal with. But the more time I've spent just in silence, like recently I just spent two hours just sitting and doing nothing, not meditating, just open eyes, staring out into space and just being with everything. And it's just incredible to sit there and just witness as an observer what comes up for you. So there's all these thoughts come up. Oh man, are we going to sit here for two hours? That seems long. This is a waste of time. We should be doing something. And then just going, yeah, those are Oh, yeah, those are the thoughts. That's interesting. And then getting feelings. I had a, a, a thought about an event that I'm speaking at in a couple of weeks, and straight away my palms got sweaty. <laughs> so I had this thought about, man, I've got to speak in front of all these people, and I had a physical reaction. So although all I was doing was just sitting there at the table, I managed to have a physical reaction of sweaty palms from nothing but a thought. And so it was just fascinating to sit there and just observe different things as they come up, just checking in with myself, seeing different feelings, different thoughts, and realizing that, oh, there's actually nothing wrong. As long as I'm sitting here in this moment, nothing is actually wrong in this moment. Everything's fantastic. But through my thoughts, I can create things being wrong. I've got to send that email. Oh man, I forgot to tell so-and-so that I'm going to be late for dinner tonight. And we just sit there as like a problem-creating machine. And I heard Alan Watts say, there's nothing wrong with thoughts. Like everything, they're good in moderation. But thoughts are powerful servants, but terrible leaders. So if we're sitting there listening to our thoughts all the time, looking for guidance and advice, we're going to be just in a constant state of anxiety and fear and this and that, bouncing from one thing to another. So my practice has really been just sitting still through different types of meditation and just you know, like I say, sitting for two hours, which is nothing revolutionary, but, you know, give it a try and see how hard it is to actually make yourself sit for two hours before you laugh at me. And that's just given me some incredible insights, just feeling that experience that nothing's wrong, but there's just thoughts that come up all the time that try and convince me that something's wrong. And I've really had some cool insights out of that. So by listening to my body and kind of tuning into all of this stuff, I really have started to hear and feel and get different signs of my purpose, what my purpose is for being on this earth. And I never thought I would say this is sounding all a bit woo-woo for me, but it's the truth. This has been what I've been dealing with and what I've felt come up the more and more I've spent time in silence and in meditation. And my purpose really is, I feel strongly that I was sent here to heal. Sent here to heal a generation that is the victim of a lot of pain and a lot of wars and a lot of wrongs of the past, two, three, four generations ago that have just been passed down from generation to generation to generation. As we know, hurt people hurt people. 
And I really got the sense just through sitting still of how strongly that purpose is within me that I'm here to, I don't know how, you know, coaching, being with people, spending time with them, listening, guiding, whatever, but really appreciating that my purpose is to heal a generation. And so I'm sitting with that. I mean, this is a pretty new insight for me and I'm just sitting and being with it. I don't feel like I need to go and do a whole lot of stuff because of that, but it's amazing that that emerged when I chose to slow down, turn my phone off, stop looking at Facebook and Instagram, stop going out with friends every five minutes, distract myself. When I was able to slow down and just be with myself, that was what came up. The meditation I'd be doing that I want to introduce you guys to, some of you might be doing it already, but it's called the R Meditation by Wayne Dyer. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's, it's a funny one if you uh, feel any insecurity about you know, yelling the word R out during a meditation. It's probably not the one for you. But that noise, R, like you hear the OM or the R, is, it gives you this incredible vibration all through your chest and down through your body. And it helps to clear out and open up that channel between your belly, your solar plexus, your chest, your heart, and your head as you go through that meditation, which that has given me just, again, some incredible insights. So that meditation combined with sitting and silence and just listening, trusting my body, not sort of falling into my thoughts every five seconds and thinking there's a problem with everything have been incredible insights for me lately. So check it out. If you want some help, if you want some guidance, if any of this has resonated with you, if you want more help, identifying and and listening to find your purpose, reach out to me. I'm always here and I'm always happy to talk to you guys because I love connecting and hearing what you're going through, what you're up to, uh, what you're uh, dealing with and and really what you want to get out of life. So feel free, reach out to me on Facebook anytime or email me nathan at nathanseward.com and I'll hit you back with a reply straight away. One man who is uh, an expert at this and who I've been talking to a lot lately about energy work, the body, tantra, is Kyle Jordan, my guest this week. And Kyle is such a special person. You'll hear he tells his life story very deeply at the start of the show about the journey that he's been on, a very traumatic event as a little boy that caused him to, well, you'll hear what happened and the journey he's been on to try and heal and recover himself to find his purpose and his gift. It's a beautiful conversation. I love Kyle. He's such an insightful guy and he's a gift to this planet. And I really hope you get a lot out of this conversation. So without further ado, enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Kyle Jordan. Well, I've kind of been on this journey to figure out, you know, something that happened to me when I was really young. And I've had lots of other experiences that have kind of circled around it. But my life was defined by a moment when I was about two and a half, three years old. I had uh, some issues with my urethra growing up so that I, I got to a point where I couldn't pee and in and out of the hospital getting catheterized and just not very pleasant types of uh, procedures that they do to check to see if everything's working. And then they decided that I required surgery to fix whatever issue it was. And uh, the doctor got a little ahead of himself and he, he should have been doing it in about two surgeries, but he ended up trying to do it in one. And I ended up having scar tissue in the urethra a couple of days later where it blocked my urinary tract so I couldn't pee. And I went about 
18 hours not being able to pee before I told someone that I had to pee. And then uh, got rushed to the hospital by my dad. And he brings me to the hospital room and I'm in the waiting room and the doctor's coming in. He's like, okay, are you ready to do this procedure so we can get you peeing again? And I'm like really resistant (laughs) because there's so much pain. And he's like, okay, well, if you're not ready, I'll just leave. So he left me there for a couple hours, came back, did this about two or three times. And then he came back one time. He said, I'm ready to leave home. So we're going to do this now. And he gets my dad to hold me down, pulls down my pants, takes a steel rod and sticks it in the urethra into the scar tissue to open it up so I can pee. And I'm like kicking and screaming and my dad's laying on my chest. I can't see what's happening. All I feel is extreme pain. And so my life was kind of defined by that moment. That was a moment that I just checked out. I completely dissociated and went up into a place that was safe, which was my mind. So my journey has been to come back into the body. And I had done it in a very slow way. I I wanted to do it all the ways, getting around, (laughs) actually having to go back into my penis. Growing up, I had a lot of beautiful things that were going on in my life. I had started piano when I was three and very quickly became the best in the province. By 14, I'd won provincials. I'd always played sports growing up, baseball, soccer, volleyball. Always excelled at everything. School, never needed to try. Always just soaked it in. And I kind of went about 12 years, you know, before I really started feeling off, almost depressed. As a teenager, 14, 15, my self-image was really unhealthy. I just just did not like my own body, didn't like the way that I felt. I knew how to use it. I was really good at sports, so I was constantly in it, using it, but something didn't feel right. And I uh, started working out really heavy around 16 to try and, I don't know, remedy it somehow and got really into weightlifting. And whenever I get into something, I kind of go full in. I go 100%. I just dive in. I cocoon myself in that activity. So I isolated myself in high school just to work out for probably two or three years. Didn't hang out with many friends except for the times I was in sports or times I was in music, which at that point, even talking about music, being very talented, I had such self-esteem issues that I, I was embarrassed that I was good at piano. So I thought it was feminine or I thought that it made me a wuss or this or that or even though I played sports too it was always like a soft spot so I always hid a lot of my gifts except for when I played sports and I hid my intelligence and I I hid myself from the women (laughs) from the girls growing up although I was always curious and interested I was just hiding (laughs) holding back because I mean deep down I think I knew I'd have to eventually face what happened when I was three, if I were going to be relating with women, I would have to face what was going on. So I just kind of, every time I felt uncomfortable around someone I was attracted to, I wouldn't want to go in my body. I would just check out and like freeze or make some weird comment or do something or feel awkward and walk away. And I always thought there was something wrong with me. You know, fast forward, I'm about 18 not sure what I want to do with my life. And my dad had been a massage therapist. So 
I decided I'd, I'd get into massage therapy, get into some body work. So I take my first year, excel, top of the class, just came so natural. I got to a point where I was just so bored with it. <laughs> they were taking too long that uh, I decided I'm happy with massage therapy, but I'm not really feeling it. And right around that time, mid first year in massage therapy, I went through a breakup, my first real, you know, what I considered love <laughs> and, and the first real breakup and heartbreak. And along with everything else, feeling disconnected to my lower part of my body, where if a man, I'm coming to realize if a man is not comfortable sitting in his, in his lower half of his body, he can't bring his consciousness to a place where it will connect with the world. Even in the navel, if he's not in his navel, he'll have a hard time connecting with his environment. But if he's not in his genitals, he'll really have a hard time connecting intimately with any human being, whether or not he's engaging in sex. Just the energy coming out of there is kind of like a, a force that connects or can, it's like a dousing rod. So I really never had any deep intimacy in la until I started having sex. And that was temporary because the energy would stop flowing when I wasn't having sex or having pleasure. So losing that was almost like losing a lifeline back to my creative energy, back to my feeling of connectedness to the physical world. So I got depressed. And the only way I knew how to deal with it was to write music. So I called up my, one of my friends who'd done music in high school. He was a rapper and his friend had a studio and I, I begged them, just let me come and do some music. And they had no idea that I had done music for most of my life, but they gave me a shot. They let me come in and lay down a couple tracks and uh, built a really good relationship with, with some musicians. Wrote my first three or four tracks and decided to buy my own studio. So I left that spot one night and uh, the next morning I went and just bought $4,000 worth of gear and set up my own studio, started producing and started writing my own music. And it was a channel. It was an outlet for me to, to get something out that I wasn't willing to feel into fully, which was the disconnect emotionally. And I decided not to go back to massage school. I decided I was going to do music. So I got into music and I started doing shows and I started getting attention for it. And I started enjoying it and started meeting all sorts of people. And, uh, started getting some good recognition because in my city of 200,000 people, there's like no singers in the hip hop scene. I was pretty much the only one at that time that was out actually doing shows and performances. So I had access to so many different artists that I never had to even ask. People in the rap scene would try and come up and connect with these people and, you know, they wouldn't really want to connect. But I was the only singer. I always had lots of people coming to me to do their chorus. So I got popular quick in that scene. And then I decided I really want to take this to the next step. So I applied to go to school in Vancouver to do audio engineering. I was applied. I went out there to check it out, got to the school. They have a scholarship. They allot each year, $2,500 for the whole school. I applied, sent them some of my demo music and they gave me a $2,000 scholarship. They gave me 80% of their allotted budget for scholarship. And uh, about nine days before I was about to head out, I just got this weird feeling in my stomach and, a, and an idea like, I don't know if I really want to be producing other people's music 
like for the rest of my life. Kind of just enjoyed doing it myself for me. And the idea crossed my mind. Oh, maybe I should go back and go to school and massage and see if I can complete that because I'm only one year away. So I call up my old school, the principal, and I say, I've been out of school for two years now, but I want to come back. Are you okay with me coming back and completing my second year? He says, I'll have the secretary check and see if you're in good standing, see if you completed everything. But, you know, from what I remember, you were always on top of everything and you, you have great relationships with all the teachers. So I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be able to. So he called me up the next day and he said, yeah, you know what, you're uh, you're in good standing with the school. So if you come back, I want you to know it's all on your hands. It's all on your shoulders. If you fall behind or if you are behind, you need to catch up. So I said, okay, I'll do that. Went back. It was the same thing. I barely studied. In fact, this time I had more of a distraction because that's where I met my ex-partner, my ex-wife. I met her at massage school. So we'd always sit in the back of the class <laughs> and flirt and, and not pay attention to the lessons. And somehow I still made it through with 80s, <laughs> which has been my life. <laughs> if I just sit in the room, I pick things up. Osmosis is my best friend. I don't really do intellectual processing as much. <laughs> but at that point, I realized I went back and I met my partner, which we went on a six-year journey together, living together and relating and going through our ups and downs. At the beginning, it was really rocky because we both brought our old selves to this new relationship. We had to work through that. We would fight quite a bit in the very beginning, argue. And I came to realize we had a breaking point one time where we broke up for a day. And I realized at that point, now looking back, that that was us committing to stop acting like this person was one of our past partners. So I made in myself, I can't speak for her, but I just kind of like realized, wow, I'm treating her like I used to treat my ex, the one before her. And that one day breakup, which felt like a lifetime, felt like my heart fell through the earth, <laughs> like it dropped. <laughs> I couldn't even breathe for that day. Then I went back and just said, like, I want to try again. And everything changed. It was like we had to end the way we were currently relating so we could start a real relationship between the two of us. It's like we'd carried all the garbage of our past relationships and just thrown it on each other as we were working it out up until that moment where we both decided to drop it. And things got a lot better. At that time, I was working on an album. I finished my album in December of 2012. And I never ended up touring. I got into meditation. I had one of those typical stories of waking up December 2012, the Mayan calendar. I just woke up. Something happened and I realized this life I've been living is very on the surface and there's something deeper inside of me calling me, prodding me, inviting me to explore. And so I started meditating two hours a day. I started this program, very committed, dove in, <laughs> cocooned myself in that process. And uh, I started taking all these additional trainings like Reiki, body talk, hypnosis, different systems of healing I studied. As I was diving deeper into myself, I was really experiencing more of the energy world. And I was still running my massage practice at the time and getting really, really good, getting really good results. And then in about four years, I hit a wall and I just got bored. 
completely uninterested. And I decided I'm, I, I don't know what system I'm using, but I'm done using systems. I'm just going to put my hands on people. We'll see what happens. And the stuff that started happening, I, I would touch a person. This one case, I touched this woman. She had a long scar up her leg from when she was a kid, a keloid scar, but it wasn't red. Keloid is when the skin is raised. I just put my hands on her. And by the end of the session, I asked her, I said, what leg was the scar on? She said her left leg. I said, I'm not seeing a scar on your leg. And she looked and examined and she couldn't find her scar. And I have no idea still to this day what happened. But things like that would happen when I would just put my hands on people. So around that time, I started getting involved with some yoga, really dove deep, found I was so resistant to having like a teacher or a guru, but somehow I found this one guru online named Sadguru, and uh, I was really drawn to him. His logic was so in alignment with my mind that it just gelled. And I did his program, Inner Engineering Online, and life completely changed. Shortly after, I started getting into uh, working with cacao, one of the plant medicines. And I explored with other plant medicines like aboga, ayahuasca, San Pedro, tobacco. I did them a couple times and I started holding ceremony for people as well. I hosted a couple of boga ceremonies in Canada. But my, my main passion when I moved into the plant kingdom and started working with plants and the spirits of the plants was, uh, was cacao. Because it's such a subtle spirit that unless you really pay attention, you'll miss it. And yet it's so widely used and abused that people don't even recognize the power of it. And most of the chocolate that people are getting today is just a small taste. It's so refined that you don't really get the raw chocolate, the real raw enzymes and the, the different qualities and the ethnogens that create the spirit or the energy of the plant. But when you really tap into cacao, she's like the mother. I kind of see her as the blood of the earth and uh, it really connects people to their heart. So that was kind of my journey that that began the journey from my head into my heart. Cacao was a very, very powerful ally. And I started sharing her with people. We got a community built that grew, you know, we would have 80 people at our events. I would do gong baths, crystal bowls, soundscapes using my musical background and basically shamaning with sound and cacao. And then I kind of left all the healing. I, I, I decided, you know what, I'm done taking away people's problems if they're gonna continue creating them unconsciously. <laughs> I would rather uh, work with them in a different way. And I found coaching. So I got into coaching and I started working with people's compulsive patterns and behaviors and the thought patterns that they would run over and over and, and found ways to break the cycle that was creating the ailment and give them a brand new cycle that would create or get them back in touch with their natural state of health. And then just last month, I was in Europe doing some men's work and some tantra work. And that's when I experienced being in my body for the first time. I was in Turkey in a tantric retreat with a master named Shantam Nityama. And, uh, I just experienced coming into my body. It was like being in that environment gave me permission to explore my body sexually and whatever energies were still left 
and the genitals from that trauma, I was actually able to go in there and feel, and I learned how to turn pain into pleasure with breath and with sound, which is what I'd always been doing anyway. I just didn't have it all together. So my whole journey, my whole life, there's been a very, very intelligent guidance system happening inside of me, guiding me one step at a time, taking me just deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into myself and showing me all the right things, but I never packaged them or put them together in the right way to finally come back and be in the body, which is, in my perspective, after having done all the sessions I've done, the thousands of bodies that I've worked, well, the thousands of sessions and hundreds of bodies I've worked on, and doing the coaching as well, hundreds of people already. After doing all of that, I'm starting to see when I came back into my body, the only thing we're ever really trying to do is stay in the body. Because if you stay in the body and you're willing to look at life exactly the way it is, you're looking at it as if you were looking down the barrel of a gun. And if that trigger's pulled, you're going to still keep your eyes open. If you're that committed to being here, and feeling everything in your body, then no one needs to teach you a thing. All the answers are here for you to see. But the problem is we go through trauma in our body and it creates so much pain and so much agony that every time we feel that discomfort, because it's hard to take it all in at once. So every time we feel that discomfort, there's kind of like a lift, like a, like we jump, like a trampoline. We just jump up. And we go into our mind and we go somewhere. And I never even realized I was doing this until I had conscious sex with this woman who her body would be in a full orgasmic state. She was fully orgasmic on her own. If I just looked at her or if I just touched her, her body would feel the energy and it would respond and it would go into an orgasmic state. And I was just holding her and I checked out one time. I went into a thought and she Without me saying a word, she said, are you here with me? I was blown away at her sensitivity to me checking out. And that was the first time I really realized what checking out felt like. Because I'd never had anyone call me on it. It had always been a solo thing. I could check out. No one would know. (laughs) I'm looking at you. It looks like I'm here, but I'm gone. So to have her body telling me and my body that I've left. That was the greatest feedback I've ever had. And that started my journey coming back into the body because every time I was spending time with her, I could feel her body respond to me being in the body. And every time I wasn't in the body, her body would stop responding. So I learned what it felt like, all my checkout mechanisms and what I actually did and where I went. And and I really learned how to stay in the body because I would also recognized that when I was about to check out, there was this little vibration or this uncomfortable feeling as my energy or as my consciousness was moving down into my body, down the front of my body. And as I'd hit that little bit, I would want to get rid of that feeling or I'd want to escape it or I'd want to push it away so I could be present for this woman. But I didn't realize that being present meant going through that feeling. And so I learned how to go through the feeling instead of letting go of the feeling. I went through it. 
It's kind of like, feels like you're falling through a cloud in your own body. You're falling through this little vibration. And uh, the more and more I did that, the more her body would respond. So I spent a nice 10 days in that place where I just was in my body. And even coming home, I'd sit down and I'd watch people talking. And I would just see how conceptualized their life is. How these ideas, they didn't even exist when I was in the body. One conversation I had, this woman, uh, I was just kind of helping her get back into her body. And I was looking at her and she was going into an orgasmic state. And she said, I don't feel like I deserve to feel this much pleasure. I said, what does that mean? She said, I don't feel like I'm worthy of the pleasure. So what does the word worthiness mean? She's like, I don't know. I said, look, if that tree over there drops an apple, if a squirrel sees it, or if another animal sees it, they only have two options, yes or no. Do I want it? Do I not want it? And that tree is not in any way thinking, hmm, who's the worthy one here? Who's deserving of my apple? He's just given an offering. So when we're in the body, there's just two options. Yes or no. All the conceptual stuff of worthiness or confidence or self-esteem. I mean, confidence is really when you're in your body and it feels good. Some people say, yeah, I need to boost my confidence. All they're really saying is I need to jump back in my body and feel how good it feels. <laughs> but they're trying to do all these mental tricks. So that conversation showed me something. It showed me there's a whole industry based on mental tricks. Where if someone has a belief, like they've created a lie, like the word worthiness, which doesn't exist if you're in the body. The word worthiness, if a person feels unworthy, or they've created a lie that there is even such thing as worthiness, then they need a loophole. They need an escape route from that belief so they can jump back into the body for a temporary moment. So maybe they'll have like a little game they had. So worthiness could have been developed as a child, right? Oh, once you do the dishes, then you'll get the treat. Then you'll get the pleasure. Okay, so I'm only worthy of the pleasure when I do something. So I need to do something for someone else to be worthy of their attention, their love, them actually wanting to spend time with me, whatever it is. So we go and we create these people-pleasing behaviors as a way to get out of this concept or to create a loophole back into our body, where if we're willing to actually do the work and dive into our body, we don't even need to play in the conceptual lies anymore. We don't need to create any loopholes for our own beliefs that are lies in and of themselves. So that was a very interesting discovery that I was doing that. <laughs> And a lot of my friends are doing that until I take them into their body. And then they realize life is as simple as yes or no. Does your body want it? Does your body not want it? So that's a little bit about my journey. I came back into the body. That's it. I left at three, <laughs> became very intelligent because my energy was up in my head all the time, but I didn't feel much. So I got depressed. I got numb. And when I came back into my body, I realized how much pleasure there actually is. My cells are vibrating all the time. I'm in a constant state of orgasm. 
So when I'm actually in my body, I'm never thinking about needing to get anything from anyone or trying to please another person because I'm already pleased with myself. Thank you for sharing that. It was a, yeah. an incredible journey that you've been on. I was with you the whole way there, just enthralled in your story. Mm. And it's, what occurred to me was, you know, I'm a big fan of powerfully framing situations, you know, and to see what happened to you at three years old, although painful and excruciating. To me, it's what was required for you to go on this journey <laughs> to get you to this point. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm seeing certain situations in life as initiations. The earth, back in the day, tribes got this. They got that the men needed to go through certain warrior initiations. And they would actually create the scenarios for them. So they'd go on a near-death journey. In some tribes, they even cut out the radial bone in their forearm. And if they survive, then they've moved from boyhood to manhood. There's some pretty intense rituals that inflict pain. And I can tell you, I was blessed with an initiation by life. It took me a long time to see it. It took me 25 years to see that it was an initiation into manhood. I got my opportunity at three. Most people got to wait <laughs> to experience that much pain. <laughs> so they don't get the opportunity to be a man at the age of three. What was the decision you made there? Was the decision as a kid, you know, I was trying to understand that part of it. Was it because there's this portion of like your dad holding you down and forcing you to go through something you don't want to go through? There's the horrible <laughs> way that the doctor was dealing with the situation. And then there's the pain itself and just not wanting to even acknowledge that part of your body for fear of having to relive the pain. Mm. That was what was there for me. But what was the decision that you made? Well, the decision at that time was run away and hide. <laughs> but at the Tantra retreat, when everything started clearing up, the decision that actually allowed me to deal with that trauma that had been stored in my body for 25 years was, I'm not running anymore. I'm not running from any experience. I'm not running from any situation. I'm going to sit right here and look right at it and feel everything. And so... It's really interesting. If you want to be meditative, the only thing you have to do is not run away from anything you're feeling. And that in itself is a practice that I'm developing and I'm realizing how powerful and profound it is. It's so many unconscious reactions that make me check out to feelings. If I'm sitting there and I'm fully present to them, they pass. And then I get a different level of depth and more space in the body to inhabit. And I had been avoiding that one for 25 years. So I know that it can take a long time to learn how to come back into the body, but it only takes a second to get rid of a trauma. So there's no time frame on how long it will take you to heal, depending on the severity of your trauma. There's certain choices and there's certain things that need to happen in the body experientially but it can release in minutes or in sometimes it's a split second and really the choice is that you're going to sit and you're going to look at it and if it kills you you're willing to do it you got to be that committed to going through the pain if this kills me i'm still going and that's really what develops the warrior spirit see a warrior or a samurai sharpens his sword he sharpens his blade all the time that's like using the mind, right? We sharpen our mind all the time. 
But one day you're going to have to take that into the battlefield. And then it's no longer about your mind. It's about what your body does with the sword. It's about what you actually do in that moment. Are you willing to do whatever it takes? And are you willing to stare death right in the face and still walk, still feel everything? And that's like what life offers us. It offers us certain opportunities. When we've gone through traumatic experiences, once we've built an identity around it, we actually have to be willing to die. Because I had an identity that developed around this little boy that was traumatized at three. Oh, he was traumatized and the story goes that his dad held him down and this doctor violated him and his mom wasn't there because she had to look after his brother so he didn't have anyone to turn to after he couldn't trust his dad and he grew up isolated and depressed. I developed this whole character. And so I wasn't really seeing the boy that went into that experience. I was seeing the story that came out of it. And I was in it my whole life until I wasn't anymore. And so the first thing that happens when traumas relieve is the story starts to fade. Then you start to come because you're coming out of the mind. Then you start to get back into the body and you start to feel all the sensations again. So when you can drop the story and you can feel the sensations, you get to actually process the moment that you never processed. At three, I just jumped out of the body, went into my head, escaped somewhere. So I never got to really feel all that pain, which was kind of like my initiation. It's like if you go through this much pain, you're going to handle life effortlessly. If you can face this and you can go in, there's nothing that you can't handle. So I had to make that choice at the age of 28. That, okay, it's like I'm looking at a battle. A battle I created with myself. It's like I'm a samurai or a warrior looking at the opponent. And I'm thinking there's going to be some pain here. But I'm willing to die. I'm willing to die and feel everything. And I'm willing to go through it. Because you don't actually die, but you have to be willing to face that feeling exactly. that's saying to you, if you try and feel this, you're going to die. That's the fight or flight response in your body. That's exactly it. And I used to work with people around suicide and things like that when I was doing the body work. And I personally had, you know, at times suicidal thoughts. And I had an experience in India where... There was just such an intensity of emotions and energies that I was like, oh, I don't want to be here anymore. Again, another opportunity for me to check out of the body, but like fully. At that moment, I just like, I kind of like settled into the idea that it was okay to die. But I wasn't going to do anything to myself physically, but just settling into the idea that I was okay with the feeling of wanting to die. Then the feeling the emotions and the mentality around it started to pass. And so I had like an ego death and it freed me. <laughs> I dropped my personality. I kind of walked out of my life at that point. I kind of realized that me and my wife weren't necessarily meant to continue our path together. That was the beginning of it. But it's like I had given up a whole life. And really what I'd given up was that identity that I'd carried since I was three. So oftentimes we face these really tumultuous situations and we're like on the brink of wanting to check out. But really that's just us with an opportunity to dissolve a part of our ego that's been holding on for way too long. 
a story, an identity, something that traumatizes us daily, it's ready to go. Not us. I really get this you know, for myself as I started moving into this world, the personal development world, that, I don't know, I came from a culture, I guess, that didn't value that so much. You know, New Zealand, were pretty staunch. We don't, anything personal development is kind of looked at as woo-woo or hippie or American or something like that. It's changing now, but slowly. And for me, like, I just knew in my heart of hearts that this is the world I needed to be in. I was here to help people. And whether you want to call that coaching or healing or personal development or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's just what I was here to do. But my fear was to be isolated from my people, to be lonely, to be isolated, to be turned upon. And I remember making the decision. It wasn't that I was willing to die, but the decision was, am I willing to lose all my friends to be turned upon, to be isolated, to be alone on this journey in order to follow what I know to be true in my heart? Mm -hmm. And the answer was yes, because my fear was telling me that's what was going to happen. And so I had to say to the fear, okay, let it happen. And then on the other side of it is none of that happened. <laughs> and I followed my heart and that fear dies. Mm. I want to bring up something that came up. As you said, I made not the decision that I want to die. Now that I'm looking at it, the decision is really, do I want to live? Mm. Because all of that suffering is killing us. And we're trying to escape our own body. The, the thing that we're inhabiting here for however many years we're here. So it's really a question of, do I want to live? Do I want to go through this and come back into the body so I can be here in reality, living and experiencing the joys of what it is to be embodied on this planet? What are some of the ways that you can get into your body? You talk about getting into your body, which I understand conceptually, I think, and I probably experienced it a few times, but can you give me some more detail about some of the practices for that? Well, one of the first things is breathing down the front of the body. So actually bringing the breath down the front of the body and then back up the back of the body to the top of the head. This is the microcosmic orbit. And it's interesting because when you're first learning how to do this, most people want to breathe lifting their chest. But this breath actually is kind of like dropping the chest and the shoulders come up and like the energy flows down the front of the body all the way down to the genitals. If you're a male, it'll flow down to the tip of the penis and it'll come back up the base of the penis to the sacrum and up the back of the spine, up to the top of the head. And that's one way that we begin coming back into the body is we're, we're willing to breathe down the front of our body through certain traumatic experiences. Or if we, here's a really good one. If you have a situation that triggers a sensation in your body, like a, it's almost like it's cramping up or it's doing that fear response. I look right at the situation. So let's say someone said something to me. <laughs> Sometimes it happens when people call me out on things. <laughs> They'll call me out on something. <laughs> I'll be looking right at them and I'll get this like, like a ghost, you know, <laughs> like they're a ghost and it scared the crap out of me and my body. And so they'll continue talking. And I realize at that point, there's no point in me trying to stay along with their conversation because they just showed me in my body that there's something that I'm avoiding. So I go back into my body at that moment. I let them continue doing whatever they're doing because I understand that they're making up, you know, words. They're saying words. I'm making up the meaning. So it's not as important what's going on in the words that they're saying. But now our bodies are talking. They've triggered something that now we're in a different conversation. So I'm paying attention to the body conversation. 
and I'm feeling this feeling and I'm actually trying to feel the exact shape or the exact location and the exact feeling. I'm trying to isolate or move in on it. And sometimes the pattern is that we want it to change. So we'll want to like move it. We'll want to move away from it. But like I'm trying to go right in on it and find the exact shape. Because if I can see it exactly the way it is, it's like it's being seen for the first time. And when it's being seen with that much attention, it's like, oh, now you saw me. Now here's the lesson and I'll be on my way. It's trying to get your attention. That's all it is. And it needs the attention that it's actually seen just the way it is. So let's say you look at a person and you're like, oh, they may look good in this shirt. Well, we do that with our bodies too. <laughs> and we do that with sensations. We're like, oh, well, this feeling, well, they'd probably feel better like this. <laughs> we do it so unconsciously and so quick that most people don't hold the attention on what that feeling really is. So they've checked out before they even have felt the feeling in the way that it's actually appearing in reality. They've added one layer to it like, ooh, well, if it was just a little bit less intense, I'd sit with it. <laughs> if it was like a little bit more on this side, I would feel comfortable feeling it. But you got to go right into it no matter what it feels like. And again, there's always two conversations. There's the one happening between the body, which is reality. The body will not lie in a conversation. And then there's the one happening between the minds, which there's actually two conversations because the mind is polarized, meaning if I talk to someone, if I use these words, they're going to assume a meaning based on what they currently understand. So in no way are they actually fully understanding or relating to my experience which I'm describing through words. But what's happening in the body, if I'm really speaking from my experience, I'm emanating an energy and their body will pick it up. So if they're attentive in their body during the conversation, they'll actually feel what is happening within me and what I'm actually trying to put into words. But experiences can never truly be put into words. Kind of like listening with your body. That's exactly it. And that's what being present really is. Someone was just standing there listening to this by themselves. Can you just take me through that breathing exercise from start to finish? Yeah, definitely. So if you were standing in front of me and I'm staring at you in a way that I'm willing to go deeper than you're willing to go. Right. So what we really feel the issue with is connection and intimacy, typically. So if I'm sitting there staring at you and I'm willing to go deeper into you and you're willing to go into you, you'll come to a place where you'll hit this little wall inside of your body and it'll feel uncomfortable. And so I'm going to stare <laughs> at you <laughs> and watch you feel uncomfortable. I'm not going to give you a way out because I'm not uncomfortable with you being uncomfortable. So that's the first thing, having someone who's willing to <laughs> sit there with your discomfort. But I'm going to spend my time just being attentive to your discomfort. And your only task is when you're faced in these situations where someone's willing to go deeper than you, and it could be a man or a woman, it could be a boss, could be a husband, could be a wife, it could be anyone. They're willing to go deeper than you're currently willing to go intimately into yourself. So you're actually feeling an intimacy block. You'll feel the feeling. You'll take in their gaze, take in the whole situation, stay present continue looking at it. And will that appear as a feeling in the body somewhere, that intimacy block? 
Yes. You'll feel something in the body just like, ugh, doesn't feel good, doesn't feel right. Is this something you could do with your partner? This is the best thing you could do with your partner. <laughs> the best thing. Conscious sex and relating is the quickest way to come back into your body because it's one of the most intimate places you could be. Most people aren't having that depth of intimacy in a day-to-day -day conversation with a friend or with their boss or with their parents. <laughs> but you're in a complete vulnerable state when you're in a conscious sex and relating type situation with someone that you care about, someone that your heart's open to. This is a perfect thing. This is really where I experienced it first. And the most important thing is the communication. Like even just saying, okay, I'm feeling a block. Can you just be with me? And so you give yourself an opportunity to have the attention on you, twice the amount of attention while you sit and feel through this intimacy block. And even during intercourse. See, I think we're raised in this society that is driven towards an outcome that everyone is like pushing for climax. And, and what I'm realizing is orgasmicness is a completely different thing. Imagine like an ocean. And imagine the ocean goes deep. I mean, it goes thousands of meters deep. And imagine there's little waves. The wind is creating waves on the surface. So climax is kind of like bringing the ocean up out of itself to a peak. And then it falls back down. But orgasmicness is never ever trying to even go after something so that you sink deeper into yourself and you fall back into the joy and the pleasure that is already existing in the body. The body is already orgasmic. It's just a matter of are you actually in it to feel it? So most people are approaching sex in a way that they're trying to move towards climax with their partner, but in a way that could be moving them away from their orgasmicness. And so even just holding the bodies for a little while and breathing with one another, matching the breath, breathing down the front of the body in an embrace and feeling down into the genital region and actually breathing with your other, with your partner to the point that you can feel as the intimacy, as you start to sink further and further into this person, you got a blockage, you got a, a sensation in your body that doesn't feel good. And so that's your task now. You sit with that feeling and you put all your attention on it. And you bring breath to that area, you breathe through it. And you'll notice the other person's body will give you feedback because when you move past that intimacy block, their body will open up to you. So you have to go in not trying to get anywhere, not trying to escalate it to some place. And naturally, with enough time, the body will move into a state where it just becomes orgasmic on its own and then it's ready for intercourse. Mm. We've got everybody thinking about sex now, so that's good. Well, <laughs> I want to bring one more, one more thing into this because this is a very interesting thing I found and, and it's really good to understand and to talk about it. I mean, it's so important if you're having sex with someone and you feel them check out, it's not to try and pleasure them more so they come back it's very important to actually ask them like where did you go it's it's so important that's one of the most beautiful moments that you can share with that person is to recognize that you're actually with them when you can feel them check out whereas if you have an agenda like oh i'm gonna give them the best sex of their life i'm gonna bring them to the biggest climax and <laughs> then you may miss when they check out of their own body 
<laughs> as though you're not really present because in your mind you're, you have an agenda of where you want it to go. And most people have developed that. Which is egoic, right? Which is so egoic <laughs> and not present. So two things are happening. When we're in our mind, we're not really having body-to-body intimacy. It's kind of like we're having sex with our own mind, not the body in front of us. So we miss very subtle cues that the body gives that teach us how the body wants to be touched and how the body sinks into itself and how the body actually becomes more orgasmic. We miss those cues because we're on a mission. <laughs> when it's the, the ego, like it's hitting a bit close to home for me, but <laughs> the ego is, um, <laughs> you know, like when, when you can't satisfy someone or it's not working or whatever and you were trying to get somewhere, then it's like, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? That's where I go into my head. What's, yeah, what did I do wrong? So I get that creating that environment of trust is so important too about being able to express what's going on in your body and not have it be about the other person oh you did this wrong you did that wrong or you know what i mean yeah totally letting go of the ego and i think like letting go of an outcome Mm -hmm. is such a great step if you actually approach sex with the awareness that this is meant to be orgasmic and you do it in a way that if neither of you hit climax that's okay because you have to understand How many people have truly explored sex as if it was like playing a sport? Like if they lost the game, they weren't going to like throw a fit when they were learning. Do you know what I mean? Mm. How many people really had someone conscious with them who was willing to explore sex? Like really what it is between the two bodies, not what they think it is in their mind, which most men learn sex from pornography. Yeah, I learned so much. Destin Garrick was on the show a while back and this is his jam, sex and sexuality. He taught me mm-hmm. so many things about, especially as like Europeans, how we've come from a culture of, you know, from the church of sex is a sin, masturbation is a sin. Mm-hmm. There's so much shame involved. So as opposed to mm-hmm. being a beautiful, really a spiritual act between two people, like the closest two people can get in connection and spirituality, it becomes this shameful thing that you do behind closed doors in the dark that you just get over and done with as quickly as possible and hope that nobody hears you. Mm-hmm. There's so much shame <laughs> that we have to push through. That's why there's a rush. <laughs> it's like, okay, parents are in the next room or like upstairs or roommates are over there. I don't want to make a peep. Well, that's your first experience of sex if you're a man is in your bedroom, <laughs> quiet, door closed, shameful, masturbating, you know, as quickly as possible right. so nobody finds out that you're doing it. And you can mm-hmm. carry that unless you acknowledge it or push through that, challenge that belief. That's something you'll carry into your sex life. And then orgasmicness is always so far away because the minute you try and go after something that's already happening in the body, you've left it. You've left it behind. Orgasmicness is a natural state. People call it bliss. People call it whatever the spiritual terms are. But really, it's being connected to the source or the creative energy all the way down in the root that comes up the whole spine that energizes our body. And that's our orgasmicness. And when we're in touch with it, we don't have to go anywhere. But when we've lost contact, when we've learned that sex is a shameful thing and that our orgasmicness is not okay to feel and we're not okay to moan and make sounds in public, like I see little kids finding their sound. Did you know that if a person is making a sound, an exhalation out of their mouth, it connects the orgasm throughout their whole spine? So if a person wants to become more orgasmic, all they have to do during sex is have a constant, uh, 
just a relaxing into themselves. I mean, there's so much guilt and shame around even that sound in public. If you go and you just sit beside someone, you make that sound. Yeah, I got embarrassed <laughs> when you did it. Just to see the dis- yeah, <laughs> the discomfort, right? Okay, so now you wonder when people say, oh, I, I need to find my voice. Well, here's the thing. Your voice is connected to your orgasmicness, but you're suppressing your orgasmicness. So good luck finding your voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the voice is just a vehicle to express the orgasmicness. And I say orgasmicness, but I'm saying pleasure. I'm saying bliss. I'm saying that too. But even think about the people that walk around and they're ashamed of telling someone of something good that they've done or how good they feel about something. That's suppressing their orgasm. I used to do that when I was young. Remember how I said I was ashamed about talking about me being good at piano? Because I'd win. I was so happy that I won. But I felt so inappropriate sharing it that I would suppress it and I wouldn't even get to feel the joy of winning after working so hard. So in one way or another, all suppression of pleasure, because orgasmicness is the root of pleasure, all suppression of pleasure is an indication that we're suppressing orgasm. (laughs) You'll see it in people who shut down your own joy. When you come to them, you're like, hey, I'm doing all these amazing things. You're like, oh yeah, and? Like they don't know how to express joy or their orgasm. Anyone who's shutting down someone else's joy, in some way or another, they got to be disconnected from their own pleasure or unwilling to experience it because then they wouldn't be willing to experience another person in their orgasmic state. So voicing your orgasm, (laughs) one of the most freeing things, because it actually brings the energy down the body, down the front line, which is where the energy needs to go for your masculine energy coming in through the negative pole of your head to go down into your positive pole of the penis and come out of the penis. For that to happen, you have to be making either the breath go down there, down the front body, or the sound is the easiest way for your breath to follow a pattern. So this is one of the things that really messes people up. Being in a house where they can't make a sound, because you, again, you're beside the room with your siblings maybe, or you grow up, you know, and you're masturbating and you're, you're super quiet. But the sound is actually what distributes the orgasmicness throughout the whole body. So men, when they're exploring their own body, they only learn how to feel sensation in the tip of their penis, and that's what leads to ejaculation, which is not orgasmicness. If they learn how to distribute that energy, the the energy that's created through the pleasure throughout their whole body, then their body becomes orgasmic. But the sound is typically what does that. That's so interesting. So there's some stuff to play with. Yeah, it's very (laughs) practical. It's very, very practical. Your marriage ended recently, and you gave me the privilege of uh, letting me into your world there and letting me um, help you process some of that emotion that was going on at that time. And I was just in awe of powerfully you went through that separation. Can you take us through some of the learnings that you got from that experience and maybe how you, you know, someone could apply that to their life? Yeah, I totally forgot about that in the story. <laughs> when I was talking about my life up to here, I just kind of skip that. So yeah, my wife and I decided to separate. It had been kind of coming. There were some circumstances that were getting in the way of us being, you know, really together. And we hit a a rough patch and then we went to India in February. I just had such a profound experience finding myself that she also found herself. And we just started becoming more and more disconnected. And this is a woman that in my mind, when I met her, I was like, that's my wife. 
you know, I'm going to be with her for my whole life. We're going to have kids. We're going to have a family. And, and I'm going to treat her like my princess. And there was no doubt when you first got married, this was the one. Yeah. I remember just how beautiful she was coming down the aisle. See, I, I haven't shut down to any of the fond memories. That's the first thing about moving through after you've decided that you're not going to have someone in your life or maybe you lost someone like a loved one. The first thing is never shut down any of the beautiful memories. A lot of people just want to shut down everything. They don't want to remember anything, but I keep all the beautiful memories because those are what keep me going in life is the beautiful moments in my life. So it's no different in this relationship. If I'm moving forward in my life, I'm drawing from all those six years of beauty that's being carried inside of me. And so I'm very fond of the memories that we have. I in no way am suppressing them. And as we move through this phase where we kind of weren't sure whether or not we were separating, it was two days before I spoke with you that she said for the first time, I'm thinking separation is where I want to go. And I had been kind of, I'd been threatening it, <laughs> but in my heart, not wanting it. All those old, you know, manipulation tactics that boys use to try and get girls to do things. Because <laughs> I didn't know how to handle it any other way at that time. And I came to California for the intensive where I spoke with you. And that was like really a, a turning point, a defining moment for me when I sat with you and expressed how I felt. Because I think that was the first time I admitted to myself that it was the best thing for us to go our separate ways. And I even remember so distinctly in the silence that you provided, I was sitting there and I was just bringing up these emotions. I was sifting through, going through them, like falling through the clouds. Then awarenesses were coming up after I'd gone through the emotions. And this image popped up. One little image, it's still clear to me today, just two paths, two dirt, kind of dirt roads. Like one has like trees and the other has like, it's like bright, it's a different color. And I saw that and I instantly knew. There was no doubt in my mind. I said, okay, we're meant to go our separate ways right now. So it was clear. I made the decision in that moment. We're going our separate ways. There's no doubt in my mind. There's not even any reason to discuss this. I'm clear where I'm going. <laughs> so a relationship won't work if I'm moving in that direction. So I'm clear. Then what started coming up was the pain not of the past, but of the future. I started feeling the overwhelming lack of emptiness in thinking that I would not have her in my future and I wouldn't have the kids and I wouldn't have the family and the house and I wouldn't have the partner and the companion to travel the world with and I wouldn't have all the memories that we were going to create and I wouldn't have the opportunity to grow old with her. And so I felt the overwhelming pain of that and I realized in my clarity that I'd created all of that and none of it was real. So now I'm only suffering my own idea, my own expectations for life. So I had enough sense at that time to just, I'll say, end it. I made a decision. All right, we have no future. See, a lot of people make the mistake of hanging on to the idea of the future. Well, maybe it'll work out and six years from now we'll get together. No. If you completely 
kill off all ideas. If you just end, end all ideas that it's going to go anywhere, your suffering's done. And in no way does that limit it actually happening in the future. In fact, the opposite's true. If you have an idea, it will limit what can happen in the future. So I just dropped out of my suffering in that moment. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm okay with where I'm at. I know where I'm going. And I've let go of all the future. And I'm, I wasn't fully accepting of the past <laughs> at that point. So I still had to process those emotions moving forward. But I was rooted in the present moment without a future that I could suffer. And that's what created a clear path for me to walk forward away from the past, leaving it behind, which is what's supposed to happen. You know, if you start walking down a path, you may turn back and you may see where you started. But if you go far enough, it doesn't even exist. And throughout that walk, leaving everything behind that you thought was going to be in your life, there might be some pain and there might be some discomfort. But if you're willing to look at life and whatever's being given to you now, and if you're willing to feel everything, then you'll just keep walking. And you'll do that with everything in your life. You'll handle everything with grace. That's the only choice I really made. Is that no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to handle it with grace. So to the past, the memories, you don't have to get rid of the good times. that They still occurred and they're still beautiful memories. But if you stay mm. connected to this future that you'd created, this expectation, that's where the suffering occurs. Whereas if you acknowledge that in this moment, this is not working, and you just deal with that and follow what you know to be true, this, we're going our separate ways. Commit to that gracefully. Mm. See, we got to become clear in ourselves what we're doing. And it should have no factor of what the other person's doing. That's the biggest thing. Was that to say there's no compromise or? That's to say it was so clear to me of what I need to do in my life. Now, again, I got like, I'll just say I had an insight, like a realization, like a message. You got to do this. And typically for me, they come up in pictures. So when I get something that clear, I don't ever question it. I will not compromise the intelligence in my body telling me to do something. And only after you do that a couple of times do you really understand how right it is. Mm. So powerful. <laughs> but... Because well, we spend our time, we spend our lives justifying, and if you're having to make a list of the reasons why you should still do something, you're out of your body. Exactly. Yeah, and if you just start trusting your body, then that, that opens up a whole new world. It's a yes or a no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now or later, when you say yes, you're accepting life to give you the gift now, which could be a huge slap in the face, but it's a gift if you keep walking. <laughs> but if you say no to something life is trying to give you and you say later, you're prolonging the suffering. But it's a choice. It gives you a choice. Mm. That's been amazing, Carl. Where can people learn more about you? Well, I don't really have much set up right now because I'm mainly in person. You know, I built a practice without ever having to advertise or do anything. I just have people contact me by referral. So if anyone's interested in diving deeper or even having a, a call with me or something just to talk, uh, have a complimentary call, you can email me at kylejordan13 
at gmail.com or send me a message on my Facebook page, Kyle Jordan. And I'm going to be starting a coaching blog where I'm going to be talking more about this and get my website up so I can help leave some of the experiences and the insights behind of my journey and my path through this. Currently, I don't have anything set up, so email is the best way if you really feel called to talk or if something resonated and you feel like I can help you, then feel free to reach out. I'm always available. Perfect. All that information we'll put in the show notes. And when you get your website and your, your program up and running, we can put that in the notes for later as well. The question we always finish on is about the dark side. And I'm intrigued to hear you know, what you, how you relate to the dark side of yourself. Do you acknowledge <laughs> a part of yourself that you keep in the dark? And if you do, do you have a way to embrace it? I would say my sexuality and my, my real love for sex, I had kept in the dark my whole life until I came back into the body and realized how natural and how beautiful and how joyful it can actually be to be in the body and to relate with another body in a way that it awakens both of you. So my dark side <laughs> was sex mm. and I just brought it into the light. <laughs> and so I have no shame talking about or feeling orgasmic or giving someone orgasm. I got no shame about that now, but I'm sure there are elements of me <laughs> that are still ashamed or still need some depth in regards to sex and relate some hangovers. <laughs> I mean, I'm constantly exploring, but I'm doing so with wide open eyes and full sensitivity to my body. So I'd say the dark side has been in the past just how much I actually enjoy sex. So for a number of years, I would, I'm very dedicated to a, you know, certain yogic practices. I have about a three hour a day practice. Sometimes it goes up to four hours, depending on the intensity of sadhana that I'm working on or what I'm working towards. And so during that, I actually just lost all desire to have sex for a while. And it wasn't until I started exploring Tantra again, bring my energy down the front of my body into my penis, where I started realizing, whoa, I'm not really embodying a lot of the consciousness that I'm cultivating. And so now that I'm bringing it into my body, all these things that I'm aware of and can see in the world are now becoming real living experiences in my body. And so I really see the value of living a whole life and spiritually taking your time to work on yourself and have your practices to cultivate the energy and enhance your perception and at the same time bring it to the world in a body give it to the world so my dark <laughs> was <laughs> sex until i just became okay living in the body and exploring through my body because i imagine there's unhealthy ways that you had to get that desire met Oh, definitely. I mean, I went through my pornography phase, like most people who have had a sexual trauma do. Mm. <laughs> and I went through my fantasy phase, which in some ways I'd say that that was one of the detriments to my marriage. Having a suppressed sexual side and having fantasies and things like that. And, and so, yeah, my dark side has always been sexuality and just orgasmicness. I mean, now I'm looking at it and being a massage therapist, getting to touch beautiful bodies. There was like an outlet, you know what I mean? Mm. 
is like <laughs> an outlet, but not really addressing any of the root issues, right? I wanted to be physical. I wanted to be in my body. I wanted to have contact with another body and, and be intimate. So I'd find different ways in my life to do that, mm. like sports. Oh, interesting. <laughs> where I'd like, you know, massage. Okay, I can take away your pain, but I can't take away mine. Mm. <laughs> I'd project, you know. I'm su- I was super good at getting rid of pain. It doesn't really, massage doesn't really require you to be intimate with them, you know, that right. this is you. <laughs> and or even me and my body. I could be in my mind and be working on them. Mm. You know, so I didn't even have to be in my body, feeling their body through my body. Yeah. But that's true with everything. <laughs> you can do it all through the mind or all through the body. Carl, it's been beautiful. It's been enlightening and just uh, a pleasure to dance with you over the last hour and a bit. I appreciate you coming on and opening up and sharing some of your learnings because it's a, you have a beautiful, unique view on life and your commitment to your own development. It's really something beautiful to see. So thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'd love to speak again. And I, I would uh, like to also mention that I'm opening up my first group online coaching program starting in October. And so once I get my website, the details will be on there. But uh, it'll be really deep diving into, it's not going to have much of an agenda because when I sit with a group of people, when I do a satsang, which means communion with truth, I'm really just channeling whatever energies in the room and speaking it back to them, bringing their stuff to light. But I'm going to be doing that in all areas of life. So we're going to dive into conscious sex and relating. We're going to dive into spiritual practices and ways to to actually begin healing your own body. We're going to talk about different mindsets and things for success. So it's going to have a very wide thing and it's going to run for 12 weeks on Wednesday nights. So that'll be something I'm really looking forward to uh, getting into the energy of a group of people and bringing some of this to. Sounds incredible. Let me know when that program's released and I'll make sure I share it all around and let people know that it's coming out. Cool, cool. Appreciate that. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. We look forward to having you on again soon. All right. Well, you have it, folks, that beautiful and deep conversation with my friend Kyle Jordan. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, If you'd like to reach out to Kyle, he'd love to hear from you just to uh, tell him thank you for the show or to connect with him or uh, have a call with him. You can email him, kylejordan306 at gmail.com or look him up on Facebook, Kyle Jordan. And he'd love to hear from you. Tell him you heard him on the show. As always, uh, share the show around. I'll love you forever if you do so. And let's keep spreading the good word and hopefully get this show out more and more people every week thanks again guys i'll be back next week with episode 37 of the nathan seawood show that was the nathan seawood show personal conversations with powerful men 